Welcome to the Weekly Warrior Podcast, where we are forging genuine human connection through fitness, health, mindset, and nutrition. Let's get to the show with your hosts, Jared Bradford, Connor Edelbrock, and Corey Mueller. How's it going, guys? This is the Weekly Warrior Podcast. <laughs> my name is Corey. I'm here joined with my co-host, Bones. We're not going to call him Jared, although his government name is Jared. That is my name. That is your name. Yeah, today we're going to be talking about a figure from World War I. The Meuse River is in France, and the Argonne Forest is also in France. Mm. Um, it was the, like I said, the last push to make the Germans surrender. The Americans had gotten involved in World War I pretty late in the game. And obviously we know World War I was pretty horrific, pretty terrible. The Americans didn't face the brunt of it, but they helped uh, the Allies win the war. So so what the fuck is World War I? I don't even know. What was it about? Man, yeah. World War I is one of those things where, you know, Hitler was a little kid or something. So who, Hitler, yeah, Hitler on? was a soldier in World War I in the German army. World War I, I'm not going to get into all of the... Because it, it was so politically like nuanced, World War I, uh, in a much more complicated way than World War II was. World War II was pretty straightforward. I mean, Hitler invaded Poland. The Allied powers, you know, decided, We're, we can't let that stand. And they sort of joined together and fought back against Hitler. World War I started because of the assassination of the Archduke uh, Franz Ferdinand. Yeah, Franz Ferdinand um, by a Serbian, basically a Serbian terrorist group and through different alliances, you know, all these different countries were dragged in to this giant war and whether they had a, a stake in the game or not, they were involved because they had you know, they were allied with each other. So, um, yeah, World War One was a shit show. The tactics hadn't caught up to modern technology. Modern technology had uh, really advanced with, you know, tanks and uh, machine guns. And dudes were still just running across barren pieces of land and artillery and planes, all these things that uh, hadn't really been a thing before in warfare. And, and so it led to ridiculous body counts in the, you know hundreds of like, millions it was like when cgi came out and then george lucas was like let's fucking do it all <laughs> yeah and in, there's in no the control yeah. and there's no no one to tell anybody no because it's just this new great thing today we're going to be talking about a guy named army major samuel woodfill and i knew nothing about this individual i'd never even heard his name um until one of our mutual friends and a friend of the podcast Dan educated me a little bit. I was talking to him about obscure military people from American history in, in particular. And he mentioned this guy. He didn't give me any backstory. He didn't tell me anything about him. He just told me like that would be a, that'd be a pretty good one. So I, I checked nice. into him. And he good is idea, he's, an, uh, he's, an interesting, he's an interesting and Dan amazing is, individual. So Yeah, I will say one thing about Dan. Dan is a great guy, stand-up guy, really good at what he does. Yes. And uh, he could be better at Call of Duty. Could be better, but you know we play with him, and we do. Uh, we do. As far as a professional, you won't find one of higher pedigree and quality. So, yeah. Dan, thank you for being an inspiration to this story. <laughs> yeah, get better at Call of Duty, though. <laughs> yeah, stop playing with the fucking remote. 
back to the Muse are gone offensive in 1918. Okay. So. Go ahead. Muse is. It's a river in a France. River big river in, in a, France. River and a forest in France. So yeah. people are fighting there. Big, big. Okay. Got it. It's a, it's a, so this was a massive push across France to expel the Germans. Um, and ah, eventually so it's, get it's them an to allied, surrender. it's an allied offensive. Yep. So this was, uh, the largest or the largest offensive in United States military history. Oh. And the final, it was a major part of the final allied offensive of world war one. So this, like I said, this lasted from September 26th until armistice day, which was the end of the war on November 11th, 1918, massive amounts of people like 1.2 million men. Uh, were involved in this offensive. The Germans had about 450,000, so they were pretty wildly outnumbered. And the Americans lost a lot of men in this offensive, like I said, approximately 26,000. And a large part of that was because, at this point, America hadn't been involved in a major war in a long time. We'd had some skirmishes, like Spanish-American War, stuff like that, but nothing really on this scale intercontinental bitch yeah i mean this this was like i said this was world war one this was the first i mean major thing of that day and so a lot of the american losses were worsened by the inexperience uh of many of the troops and also the tactics that were used in the early phases were just bad and it was a lot of learning on the fly and so that that led to a lot of loss of life unfortunately and then on top of that there was also this widespread uh, onset of a, a thing called the Spanish flu, and so mm. that also played a factor. Yeah, I read that. I read the Spanish flu actually you know, ended the war. I mean, it played a pretty big role. Not only was this offensive huge, like like I said, we wildly outnumbered the Germans, but yeah. on top of that, the Spanish flu was like killing people, like a lot of people. Yeah. So running yeah. through, interesting. So this offensive, the, the Meuse-Argonne offensive, was uh, the principal engagement of the American Expeditionary Forces, which that's what uh, we were, our forces were called in World War I. And it was a series of Allied attacks known as the Hundred Days Offensive, which brought an end to the war eventually. Mm-hmm. Within that were a lot of heroic stories. And today we're going to be talking about Army Major Samuel Woodfill. So he is the focus of that. that that's the large scale what's going on on the world scale okay. uh, here's some smaller stuff so army major samuel woodfill he was one of the most decorated soldiers of world war one but he was a modest man and he was known for his excellent marksmanship but it was his bravery in taking out several machine gun nests during a 1918 battle that earned him fame and the medal of honor Woodfill was born on January 6th, 1883, near Madison, Indiana. Growing up in a rural area, he watched his father, a Mexican-American and a Civil War vet, and his older brothers go out hunting. At first, he was too young to go with them. But by age 10, he started sneaking a gun out of his house to shoot small game, because if his older brothers can do it, why shouldn't he do it too? That's fair. The Indiana Historical Bureau said that Woodfill's father was so impressed when he found out instead of punishing the boy he let him hunt whenever he wanted how old is he he was 10 good 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 so this plays a really big role in his story the fact that he went out started hunting became an excellent marksman 
I think it's crazy. It's crazy to me when you said his dad was a Civil War vet, and we're talking about World War One. Someone who fought in it. That's well. If you think, I mean, me he's born in 1883. That, that was less than 20 years since the end of the Civil War. It's nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. And we unfortunately we don't have any World War One veterans living anymore. Yeah, time goes on, you know. Time goes on, that's right. But uh, Samuel Woodfill tried to join the military when he was 15 so he could fight in the Spanish-American War, but he was turned down. Obviously, he was 15. He didn't make it. So he waited a few more years, and he was finally accepted into the Army when he turned 18 in 1901. Woodfill was shipped to the Philippines to serve until about 1904. He volunteered for duty in Alaska. So he was hunting small game in Indiana, right? He volunteered for duty in Alaska, which is where he honed his marksmanship skills hunting large game in the untamed wilderness. I think this guy just wanted to hunt. I don't think this guy wanted to be in the army. I think he's like, I'm in buttfuck Indiana. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. Let's go to Alaska instead of shooting chipmunks. Right. Shoot fucking moose. I'm going to ride a moose and shoot a bear. And if you can think about this, I mean, this probably, Alaska was like, they talk about untamed wilderness. Like, this shit was... Untamed, that's a, yeah. It's even wild now, but, I mean, compared to now, 1904, I, I mean, I can't imagine what that was. Bro, that's exactly the word. Untamed. Polar bears yeah. and shit. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, totally, man. Okay. Uh, yeah. So he's in Alaska hunting shit. and So after Alaska, Woodfill served for about two years at Fort Thomas, Kentucky, before being sent to Texas to defend the Mexican border. There was a lot of uh, a lot of tension uh, between us and Mexico for a long time. Obviously, there was the Spanish-American War, um, which Teddy Roosevelt played a big part in that. We always got to plug Teddy. So yeah, um, the Rough Riders were a big part of the Spanish-American War. They rode up, uh, they rode up the hill and did stuff, and he was a hero anyway. Um, so not tension. Well, I guess that's fair. Uh, let's see, where were we? He returned to Fort Thomas in 1917 uh, and became an officer after being promoted to second lieutenant. By then, the war in Europe had escalated. So this is in 1917. The war's been going on for about two years at this point. By then, the war in Europe had escalated. So it was pretty clear the U.S. would have to join the fight. Woodrow Wilson was our president, and Woodrow Wilson was a very well-known isolationist. Back in the day, they called it an isolationist. In this day and age, they might call it America first. He didn't believe we should get it. We should get involved. It wasn't our place. This and that. Nationalism. But the biggest issue was we were sending supplies to Great Britain and you know France and all that. The Germans were sinking our ships with submarines. They were sinking civilian su- supply ships. Um, and the thing, I, if I remember correctly, I don't have it sitting right in front of me. I think the thing that pushed us over the edge to get into the war was the Germans sank um, a civilian, like a, uh, it was an American vessel, but it was a medical vessel. So they sank a medical vessel and killed a lot of Americans. And at that point, Woodrow Wilson, I mean, he didn't really have a choice. He didn't want to go to war, but again, didn't really have a choice. It was pretty clear we were going to be joining the fight. And as Woodfield prepared to deploy with the American Expeditionary Forces, he married his longtime girlfriend, Lorena Wiltshire. Just, you know, something nice that happened before he left. Just getting married. 
just got married and she's like, bye. That happened though. I've been, I mean, I've been in the country for a long time. I just realized that I love you. Um, bye. You gotta like put yourself in that position though. If you knew that tomorrow you were getting shipped out or next week you were getting shipped out to go fight in a war where millions of people have already died and like yeah. there's a pretty good chance you're not going to make it back. You're telling me right now that you wouldn't marry Jess? Depends what the benefits are going to be for. But that was a lot of it is they got benefits. Like so there if was benefits back then. So like yeah. paid death. Yeah. You get money from the government. But I'm just saying like at that point like there's you got nothing to lose and if you make it out then you come home, you, you know, there's a sense of consistency, there's a reason to come home. If I was in that position, I like fuck, man. I, it would be no no question, no doubt, no doubt. Mm. In the fall of 1918, Woodfill and thousands of other Americans were sent off to France, just as the six-week-long Meuse-Argonne battle was unfolding. Woodfill was quickly promoted to first lieutenant, and he was just outside the town of Cunel with his unit, the 60th Infantry. When he went on as a sharp, he went on a sharpshooting tear. That is comparable to the exploits of his fellow war hero, the famed Army Sergeant Alvin York. Alvin York killed a lot of Germans. He, like, manned a machine gun and was holding off, like, a whole offensive. It was pretty wild. That's why he's okay. the most famous American soldier from World War I. Anyway, so, it was October 12th, 1918. Woodfill was advancing with Company M when they came under heavy attack. Since he was in charge of the unit, Woodfill told most of the men to hang back. He and two other soldiers went ahead to find and knock out any enemy machine gun nests. When they got to the village, Woodfill's keen eyes noticed muscle muzzle flashes coming from a church tower about 300 yards away. And this is according to a curator from the Fort Polk Museum. He aimed his rifle toward where the gunner's head would be. He actually couldn't see the person and fired. The gunner dropped dead. So... He sees the muzzle flash, you know, it's out in front, mm-hmm. he, and he thinks, okay, so the person has to be, let's say, three feet behind that, because those machine guns were really long, so the person's got to be behind that somewhere. So he aimed behind, fired, and allegedly, you know, killed the gunner. Um, this is where his hunting experience comes into, uh, comes into play. Woodfill repeated that process four more times as new gunners tried to take charge of the unmanned machine gun. He only had four shots, or five shots, in his rifle, and he took all five gunners who tried to man the gun. According to his Medal of Honor citation, another enemy soldier charged at Woodfill during this time, but Woodfill killed the man with his pistol after a hand-to-hand fight. After turning, er, he turned his sights to a potential gun nest at a stable. Woodfill let off another shot. The machine gun never fired again. A short distance later, Woodfill crawled into a range or into range of a third machine gun nest. As he took cover in a shell hole, he got hit with the remains of a mustard gas shell that lingered there. Ew. So, real quick, sidebar on mustard gas. I want to I want to read a little bit about what mustard gas actually is, and then you will sort of understand why it was so bad. So, mustard gas has a long history of being used as a blister agent in warfare and is one of the most well-studied agents. It can form large blisters on exposed skin and in the lungs. Um, so you breathe it in, it's real bad, often resulting in prolonged illness and ending in death. 
Sulfur mustards, which is mustard gas, uh, are viscid, viscous liquids at room temperature and have an odor resembling mustard plants, garlic, or horseradish. Um, it was first used as a chemical weapon in World War I. Um, it was used in the Iran-Iraq War, which resulted in over 100,000 casualties. So, like, Shut the fuck up. Are you serious? Yeah, it's real bad. Oh, the war between Iraq and Iran. Yep. Yeah, that was so, in like the eighties or something. That was in yeah, like the mid to late eighties. Um, wow! And it can be deployed by means of artillery shells, aerial bombs, rockets, or spraying it from an aircraft. In in uh, World War One, it was mainly artillery shells. So that's some fucked up. You know, and it it was later outlawed by the Geneva Convention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like you know, it's a messed up thing if that's the whole bad. world is like a. Even if we want to kill each other, like, let's not do this. We're not going to do it like this because it was like it was a really bad way to go. I mean, it's kind of unfair in a way, too, because then there's no tactics. Like you could literally I mean, we're talking like nowadays might be like cyber. But like you said, you could take mustard gas and just flow a a low airplane over your enemies. And if you don't get shot down, just drop mustard gas all over them. And that was why the majority. I mean, all soldiers had chemical warfare training. So they all had mm. gas masks. The horses yeah. even had gas masks um, because mustard gas was so widely used in World War One, um, and it killed thousands of people. I mean, it was it was devastating. I'm always counting down to when I can finally upgrade my phone. With some carriers, you have to wait ages. Like if you're with Verizon, it could take you up to three years before you're ready to upgrade. But you can break free with T-Mobile. They just introduced their new Go 5G Plus plan, the first ever plan with new and two, where new and existing customers always get the same great device deals and are upgrade ready every two years. Head to your neighborhood store or tmobile.com to find out more. If your business earns millions or tens of millions in revenue, stop what you're doing and take a listen. Because NetSuite by Oracle has just rolled out the best offer we've ever seen. NetSuite gives you the visibility and control you need to make better decisions faster. And for the first time in NetSuite's 22 years as the number one cloud financial system, you can defer payments of a full NetSuite implementation for six months. That's no payment and no interest for six months. And you can take advantage of this special financing offer today. NetSuite is number one because they give your business everything you need in real time, all in one place. To reduce manual processes, Boost efficiency, build forecasts, and increase productivity across every department. 33,000 companies have already upgraded to NetSuite, gaining visibility and control over their financials, inventory, HR, e-commerce, and more. If you've been sizing NetSuite up to make the switch, then you know this deal is unprecedented. No interest, no payments. Take advantage of this special financing offer at netsuite.com strategy. NetSuite.com slash strategy to get the visibility and control you need to weather any storm. NetSuite.com slash strategy. So I just want to preface that that's what he got hit with the remains of a mustard gas artillery shell. So, so he had something that was like left over on the ground and he crawled up to or something like that. Yeah. When he jumped in okay. that shell hole, the shell hole was ah. from a mustard gas round. Um, so after, so I'll, I'll go back a little bit. He took cover in a shell hole and he got hit with the remains of the mustard gas that lingered there. So he made his way to a ditch about 40 yards from the enemy gun. Uh, while he was in that ditch, 
He took out another gunner and the four replacements with his rifle again. So these are five-shot bolt-action rifles. It's a Jeez. Springfield, um, yeah. probably a Springfield 1917 or whatever. He took out all five gunners oh. once again, and then he used his pistol to kill two more men who tried to get up close and personal with him. This is like this is like easy mode. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> like when you're playing against the kindergartners in Call yeah, of Duty. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, and it continues from here. So, Woodfill reloads his rifle and then spots a German sniper in a tree and he shoots him out of that tree. Woodfill then called on two soldiers with him to rush a fourth machine gun nest. Woodfill killed five of its crew and injured three others who were taken prisoner. A few minutes later, a fifth machine gun crew came into view. Woodfill charged this one, killing five men on the machine gun before jumping into a shell hole for cover. According to his Medal of Honor citation, two other enemy soldiers turned their guns on him. When Woodfill wasn't able to shoot anymore, he grabbed a nearby pickaxe and killed them. Yeah. You know, I'm not... I'm not... <laughs> I'm Dude, not like... World War One was the, crazy. The, I know, okay. The, the idea of that is insane. It's like a movie. It's like a movie. That, that being said... It is like a movie. Yeah. I'm not refuting the fact that this is his, on his Medal of Honor citation or like, hmm, but it's like makes me be like, really? Yeah. I, I think, I think like, that you, you have to imagine people were there with him and people witnessed this, but there was okay. probably a, a sense like when you receive the Medal of Honor, you're, an, you're a damn American hero. And I'm sure okay. that maybe events were. I don't know, exaggerated a little bit, but I bet it happened pretty damn close to this. Okay. I mean, yeah. I would just, I would I, have to I'll think. Just, I, we have to go with it. That's what it says, but it is so long ago before anything was like recorded uh, through like, you know, everything today, like we hear is through radio or recorded on camera or something like that, right. you know? So, you know, I guess history is just written by the victors too. So, that's true. Yeah, that's very you know, true. Uh that's the story. Wow, that's crazy. That's the story. That's the story. And so, thanks to all of those actions, and meanwhile, he had been exposed to mustard gas, which really inhibits your ability to see, it, and it uh, inhibits your ability to breathe. So he's dealing with all of those things while also, like, being a goddamn Avenger. Yeah, I was going to say, he's a superhero. He's a fucking Thor. So thanks to his actions, his company was able to push forward to their objective. Wow. Woodfill was then evacuated from the battlefield and spent 10 weeks in a hospital recovering from the debilitating effects of the mustard gas. Wow. On February 9th, 1919, famous Army General John Pershing, which he was in charge of the Allied Expeditionary Force or the American Expeditionary Force in World War I, presented Woodfill with the Medal of Honor and promoted him to captain. Pershing uh, praised Woodfill for fighting and not just occupying trenches for months on end, which, if anyone knows anything about mm. World War I, that was the classic problem. You People sat in trenches and didn't do anything, and it was a constant tug of war, and really ground was... I mean, ground was won in, like, yards, not miles, huh. or whatever. It was... And then well, you'd lose that ground, and then gain that ground, and it was just crazy. There's nothing was happening. Well, people were probably fucking terrified, because they're raining mustard gas through their bullets and through the sky that <laughs> well like, and yeah you're charging I mean, really, across really. no man's land getting mowed down by machine guns 
for sure. Like, what? What's what's the incentive at that right. point? It's fucking yeah. hard for king and country, man. That was <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, at least have, like arise a sense of hope that you can win something. Yeah. <laughs> like, but- there's a couple quotes. Um, there was a couple quotes about World War One. I. I wanted to highlight one in particular real quick. This was from a British captain, and he said the trench was a horrible sight. The dead were stretched out on one side. Um, the the dead were stretched out on one side, one on top of the other, six feet high. I thought at the time I should never get the peculiar, disgusting smell of the vapors of warm human blood heated by the sun out of my nostrils. I would rather have smelt a gas a hundred times, and I can never describe that faint, sickening, horrible smell, which several times knocked me unconscious altogether so like mm. it's pretty nasty shit pretty nasty Thanks shit. That. that was trench warfare i mean that's the reality of world war one it was probably as far as like modern warfare goes it was it was definitely the most horrific it's the last place i think i would ever want to be yeah world war one yeah and just imagine you're 17 years old yeah and thrown I- into it like you said, like technology was like so far ahead at that point, but like our brains and like people fighting in that war were from like the 1800s, right? For the most part. And like medically, we weren't really all there. And like, what a horrible situation. Yeah. Like just to travel to get over there from the United States, we didn't, we weren't, weren't in the war for that long. But man, what a, what a wild situation. Yeah. World War One was truly horrible. And, it's because, like you said, the tactics hadn't caught up with the with the technology. So we were still like people were still a tactic that was used was cavalry charges on horses, and they were going against machine guns and tanks nice. and planes. Yeah, and it's like that'll yeah. work. Yeah, that'll that'll work. <laughs> it's like cowboys versus aliens. You ever see that movie? Yeah, uh, oh, yeah, horrible. Yep, no chance. So moving on with uh, Mr. Woodfill's story. Okay. On November 11th, 1921, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which is in Washington, D.C., was dedicated in Arlington National Cemetery. Eight highly decorated World War I veterans, handpicked by General Pershing himself, escorted the soldier to the burial ground, and Woodfill was one of them. Woodfill retired from the Army again in 1923 with a pension. But a few years later into the Great Depression, he and his wife were struggling. A petition to get the pension increase was denied by Congress. Woodfill's wife died early in the days of World War II. So when the Army recalled him into service in 1942, he went. The Indiana Historical Bureau said he was given special clearance to serve and at age 59 was still an excellent marksman. But he had the mandatory retirement age of 60 in 1943, so his third bout of service was over and short-lived. Wow. When he returned to civilian life, he settled back in his home in the state of Indiana, where he lived until he died on August 10th, 1951. Woodfill was initially buried in a local cemetery, but his body was reinterred at Arlington National Cemetery in 1955. His final resting place is beside General Pershing, who, according to the Indiana Historical Bureau, once referred to Woodfill as the greatest single hero in the American forces. I think about this story, and I'm sure there was many stories like it. Stories of ridiculous heroism and bravery. And I think about the horrors that these guys must have gone through. And they, and they were kids. 
uh, Woodville was a man. I mean, he was like 35. He was in the military. He had spent time. He knew sort of, I mean, he didn't know the horrors of war, but like he knew the military. But a lot of the people that served in, in war, in World War One and World War Two specifically, were very young, 17, 18, some even younger. When you ask, why would you want to do this? Why would you ever want to be put in this position? Yeah, why would you? And I think anytime you ever hear them talk about it, you hear these guys talk about why they served and why they did what they did. And it wasn't for country and it wasn't for freedom and it wasn't for good versus evil. It was for the guy next to him. In Woodville's case, it was his company. It was Company M. And he had to get him out of the situation they were in and he had to do whatever it took to make that happen. And so he endured some pretty horrific things and took lives and but it led to his his men's survival and ultimately that's why we do the things that we do is for you know our brothers and our sisters and our loved ones so pretty crazy story you know i i want to be honest world war one world war two like i'm not a huge war war military like that era was like was so recent but it's i don't know it just having a hard time articulating how I feel about it. It, it. I guess maybe being somewhere in the brink of like, maybe we're, we might be going into something like this again. Yeah. And the idea of, of us kind of st- paying standby until things like get out of hand. And then we're like, all right, well, let's just go fucking end the war. Yeah. And then, you know, we're 30 now. And do we make that t- t- decision to go? Right. Like, who would fight that battle? And, like, to put yourself in that position where the whole world is kind of coming down on you and you were back in the 1918 or 1930s, I don't know what the word would be. I mean, bravery, but I would seriously, I just can't help but question, like, especially World War I with how horrible it was. And the fact that countries came together for the Geneva Convention and said, war is horrible. Yeah, but this mustard gas is way too horrible. Yeah, you know it's just like what the fuck? Like, I don't like, know. But there's even there's basic rights even in war. Like they they agreed yeah. with the Geneva Convention that there's basic rights that people should have even in wartime. Sure, and that's what it did. But even the, like we're fighting pol- like it's politics. Like that's what war is. I mean, sometimes land, sometimes religion, but with 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 our country it's always politics it's not about land if we're going somewhere else something as political is going on yeah and i think the people that fight these wars especially world war one world two where they were drafted i think there's a very large percentage of them that didn't want to fucking be there on both sides but they were following what their country had like world war one was the one that they had the shutdown over christmas and they all played a soccer game in the middle of the field yeah, and like they came out of their trenches and no one killed each other, and the next day they started killing each other. They, so yep. It's like it's you know I'm not going to be a, a a siren for no war, peace, my brother, brotherhood, and world peace. But you know, it's you hear stuff like that, like this story, and you're like, man, what the fuck have we made? Yeah, it's true. I think the the, the problem is there's always going to be bad people in the world there's always going to be bad people doing bad shit to innocent people there has to be somebody good that is willing to kill them as bad as that is and as horrible as that is 
that's the reality of it. There's always going to be somebody that's doing bad shit that needs to be that needs to die. We can just hope and pray that the the horrors of like World War One and World War Two never get repeated again. But man, who knows? With the way the world is these days, it's hard to say. Yeah. Nowadays, it's like what I maybe mentioned, like when we mustard gas. Like, what's the equivalent of that? Maybe like we don't have as far as a weapon. Like we have weapons of mass destruction, but I mean, we talk about cyber warfare um, and the damage that that has caused. Yeah. Um, and you know you go through comments and stuff on on YouTube and Instagram and like uh, social medias and like you read all these people and like is it are they even people though like how do we fucking know that this is someone real from our country that lives in our community saying these things whether you're one side or the other uh so like that the breakdown of trust that can go into that cyber warfare i mean divide and conquer right i mean it's it's, it's what we talked about off air a couple of weeks ago is like this shit going on in our country and in the world. It's almost too fucking convenient. It's, it's almost too convenient that we can draw these parallels and divides between both sides in our country. And, For uh, sure. and it's so toxic. Uh, so whether other countries are doing that, have done that, or we do that to other countries, it's that to me. I can't help but kind of draw a parallel like of just mustard gas being poured over everybody without right. fucking regard and there's no chance or hope. Yeah. It's it's not the same, but like it's it's a it's, it's the same idea. It's a different action. Yeah. I mean if you if I told someone that it had mustard gas poured on them, they'd probably shoot me in the face. And I agree, yeah, you probably should. That's kinda it's not the same, but you know, as far as tactic, like if you put spray a bunch of mustard gas, I mean, divide, right? That would probably divide people yeah. up. They probably run in all different directions, scatter and conquer. And we're we're more divided now than we have been in probably ever. Uh, well, I shouldn't yeah, say that. I mean, maybe. there was a civil you war know, I, and, and whatnot, but yeah. I think that I think that a lot of this stuff that we're going through now is uh, is blown. Like, I don't think there's as much division as we're led to believe. Um, yeah. I think that at the end of the day, we are we're all. American citizens who all generally want the same things for our lives. And we tend to just have disagreements on the way that we think those things should happen and finding that common ground again, which is what brings us, I mean, what makes society work, having uh, sort of an unspoken and spoken set of values and morals is what makes society work, and especially American democracy work. And that's we're not there right now, but I think going back to your analogy of you know looking at like right now talking about the internet and cyber this and that, and then talking about like mustard gas, if more people looked back and chose to look at the horrid atrocities that have happened that humans have committed against each other, maybe we would be less likely to commit the same atrocities now because at the end of the day, the stuff breaks down to the same things the the Serbian nationalist terrorist group wanted something. They would. They weren't heard, and they felt like the only way they were going to be heard is that they assassinated, you know, this powerful person. And it's a sim. I I think it, it, humans ha- humans haven't changed. We're the same. The means yeah. in which we do the things have changed. We have the internet. We have more advanced weapons. We have this and that. 
were the same as we've always been. There were 19-year-old Roman soldiers drawing dicks on Hadrian's Wall in England back in the, you know, before Christ era. So, like, we're the same. It's just the the times have changed. So, look back on history, learn from it, remember, and look to understand your, you know, fellow human instead of vilifying them because we're all the same. We all want generally the same thing. There are some people who don't, and those people should be dealt with in the in the appropriate way. But for the most part, we're all brothers and sisters just trying to make it in the world, man. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, that's that's such a great point. I think that's why we love doing history episodes is they're fun, and we usually learn something. I didn't know who this guy was at all. Uh, so that his story in specific is interesting, and yes, he... Whether we like it or not, America was in the war, and we he played a great part in ending the war, which is what we want. If <laughs> we want wars to fucking end, ideally, we want to win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, draw these parallels back to history. You think we were more divided than ever, but man, this whole country was founded on division and yeah. disagreement and two different mindsets or ways of life. More, yeah. more than two different ways of life. That's where we're a melting pot. I mean. Yeah. Uh, and that's man, why I so think that good... people people look at America and they're like, America is the best country ever, met, you know, whatever. I, I truly believe that, like, we're in a place now where we can move forward and we can have the America that, like, George Washington and all the founding fathers thought that we could be. We could come together and accept differences and accept some cultural differences, but, like, all falling under the American flag. And what that represents and what that means. And I think people forget that. We get too caught up in who's Republican and who's Democrat and who's this and who's that. Instead of just basing the decisions that we make and the way we live our lives. That we are all freedom-loving people who should be judged by the content of our character. And not the political party that we may be a part of. Or or the color of your skin. I mean... And that's what, like, the color of your skin shouldn't even matter. It shouldn't matter. It shouldn't be a thing. Who you choose to love and who you choose to have sex with shouldn't matter. What gender you decide to be shouldn't matter. None of those things should be forced on anyone, and none of those things should matter. And as soon as we can accept that as a society and understand that that's just part of freedom, the better off we're going to be. But it takes us as individuals to do that, to understand that to have some rational discourse over these topics and to have, you know, these conversations that lead to a better understanding of why these things matter and why they're important and moving forward in the best way possible that represents all of us because we're all just trying to do the same shit. And before you know it, shit's going to be really bad and none of us are going to be able to do the things we want to do. Yeah. So, you know, like they used to say, United we stand, divided we fall. That's exactly what's going to happen. I mean, we're all just humans trying to have a human. We're all ha- humans having a human experience. Yep. Uh, that's why I, in the past couple of weeks, we've had discussions about, yeah, you know, everything that you mentioned as far as, um, you know, abortions and trans and what gender you identify as and things that are really like uh, hot topics right now that haven't yeah. been in the past. And it's like what I've come to realize, I had perspectives from other people is too, is like, yeah, we're all just humans having a human experience. So don't yep. judge each other. Right. Anyways, that's that's the perfect world. And I think I genuinely believe that most people do feel like that in America. I think yeah. most people are 
centrist, I guess. They're more central than far left or far right. Uh, and I think that that's been silenced. I think that we're forced to take sides because we see shit on the internet and that, that right. lights that flame. So yeah. I, I agree with you. This was a great story, and I appreciate telling me this is a discussion I didn't think it would go into afterwards. But Yeah, it takes us. I, I, this is going to sound cheesy, and I, I don't give a shit. It takes us, the weekly warriors, the people who are on the ground living our lives, we're having the human experience, you know, we're in everyone in all different walks of life. We're all here. We're all doing it. We're all trying to be the best we can be. It takes us to come together and put people into political offices that actually represent that and move past racism and move past transphobia and move past homosexual phobia or homophobia and just be us. We're American citizens. We value freedom. We value the ability to do the things we want as long as we all fall under the same, you know, values, morals, laws. It's very simple. Then we can start tackling some real significant issues. You want to talk about gun control. You want to talk about mental health. You want to talk about all these things that no one actually wants to talk about. And then we just want to talk about symptoms or not the symptoms, the, the you know, the outcome instead of what's actually causing this shit, like ridiculous sociological inequality and uh, socioeconomic inequality, those are hard things to tackle. But those are the things that we have to work towards. And we're the ones who do it. The people who, our generation particularly, who've put our heads in the sand for 20 years because life has been easy. And it's not fucking easy anymore. It's fucking hard. And we can either get on board and figure it out or the like shit's going to fall apart it to think that our life our way of life is going to change if we don't do something and i don't want it to i like my life i'm very happy so we have to come together yeah there's a lot of people that don't have our life then that's not that's not i mean not and you shouldn't want our life but you should be able to want you should be able to enjoy the life that you want and that's what this country we're the only country that ever in the history of the fucking world that's been founded on, you know, democracy and not one dictator or king or queen. Right. We were founded on a, a balance of power. Yep. So we can do this. I don't know if our life's totally going to change. I think we've been through some pretty horrible, horrid shit in this history. Um, I think we hear about it way more often and more frequently now because of where we're at technology wise. So tune in next week, guys. We're going to be right back doing the same thing, hitting it hard and keep discovering. We love, uh, we, we love Earth-Fed Muscle and Apsy Farms. Um, have a good week. Peace out. May is Mental Health Matters Month. And you know what? I agree. Your mental health is important. It affects your work, your relationships, your life. So take action for mental health has great resources to help a mental wellness plan, support options, even self-care recipes. Download them today at TakeActionThe4MH.com. That's TakeActionThe4MH.com.
En Tractor Supply sabemos que hablar de sus proyectos puede darle más confianza en sí mismo y en los suministros que necesita. Al elegir una podadora de césped, escoger los nutrientes adecuados para su jardín o la comida para sus mascotas, nadie sabe más que Tractor Supply. Desde 1938 le hemos estado sirviendo y ayudándole a ahorrar en las marcas que más confía. Nos gusta tanto servirle como a usted le gusta completar sus proyectos. Visite hoy mismo su tienda de Tractor Supply más cercana. 